Hello and welcome to another episode of Afghan Affairs Podcast. I am Syed Sabar Brahimi. Today we'll be discussing the topic of economics and development in Afghanistan. In this episode, I was joined by Mr. Nazir Kabiri, who is based in Kabul, uh, who is an economist, and who is also the founder of Biruni Institute, which is an economic-focused uh, uh, think tank in Kabul. During the recording, Mr. Kabiri was still with the Biruni Institute. However, uh, now he has moved on to a government position as a Deputy Minister for Policy at the Ministry of uh, Finance. It's such a pleasure to be with you, Mr. Kabiri, today. Without further ado, I would uh, uh, hand over to you to start to discuss the state of the Afghan economy, issues such as uh, the impact of COVID, the GDP, poverty rate, uh, and whatever else you feel appropriate for our discussion today. Thank you. Thank you very much, Mr. Brahimi. It's a pleasure speaking uh, to you and I will be discussing two uh, agendas uh, this uh, evening. One, uh, on the state of economy and implication of COVID on the poverty and other socioeconomic uh, indicators. And at the same time, I will be sharing some details on this uh, uh, Geneva Economic Conference on Afghanistan, a donor conference. Uh, which is uh, held recently with, with pledges and, and grants uh, to the Afghan economy. So these uh, pretty much sums up the, uh, the the activities in the last financial year. Uh, so if I start off with um, uh, this, the question you, you had in terms of the state of the Afghan economy, our understanding at the Institute is that uh, the Afghan economy was fragile even before the COVID-19 crisis. Uh, growth has averaged only around less than 3% since 2012 uh, due to the combined impacts of declining grants, increasing insecurity, and political instability. So the COVID uh, pandemic has uh, plunged the Afghan economy into a deeper recession. The economy is projected, according to the uh, estimates uh, we have, uh, part of the Afghanistan economic outlook that we produce quarterly at the Institute, the economy is projected to contract by 8.2% in 2002, and yet official statistics have to come, with the poverty rate forecast to have increased from nearly 55% in 2017 to around 80% in 2020. And this is alarming. This means that around 8 million additional people would fall below the poverty line, increasing the number of poor to 24 million out of the 33 million population. So this, uh, on the poverty side, is something that uh, we all have to think of uh, a response, a social social protection response in terms of the safety nets and job creation and, uh, and, and also uh, in terms of the uh, development planning. World Bank uh, estimates a poverty rate of 72, uh, and we at the Institute uh, estimate a poverty rate of 80%. So, 
So again, if I may add on to that, the revenue collection is severely affected this year by the economic slowdown, worsening the prospects for the medium-term fiscal sustainability. Uh, and to enlighten our audience with respect to the Afghan economy, uh, this is not a, uh, this, uh, this economy is uh, uh, a little different uh, compared to the, to the other cases. For example, grants equal to around 43 percent of GDP continues to finance more than 75 percent of total public spending. But, but the situation is very much specific to the Afghan context. So elsewhere, you don't see that level of, uh, that high level of aid dependency. Uh, 48 equaling to around 43 percent of GDP uh, is uh, uh, unprecedented in the region or, or in also in the uh, countries even in, in sub-Saharan Africa. And this uh, finances, as I said, 75% of total uh, public spending. Uh, if civilian aid pledges, uh, the new pledges which were made, again, expires uh, by the end of 2021. Uh, there were some uh, indication for continuity of the aid in the years to come, but those are also heavily conditioned upon the peace process. So the understanding is that grants may decline rapidly over the coming years to changing donor priorities and some donors dissatisfied with the pace of anti-corruption and governance reforms. Uh, efforts. Uh, so with this, uh, if any further uh, clarifications on the socioeconomic, uh, I'll be more than happy to discuss in terms of the unemployment or exports or imports. Uh, I will be at your disposal. Uh, thank you very much for that really uh, uh, precise overview of the economy. Um, so, so the GDP is around uh, 20 billion for a country of uh, uh, 33 to 35 million people. Is that is that accurate? That that's correct. Yes, and uh, with a GDP per capita of around 520 dollars, mm, probably uh, one of the lowest uh, in the region. That's correct. Okay, uh, so uh, and then uh, so a lot of uh, about uh, for forty to fifty percent of the economy depends on the on the international aid, and you mentioned the issue of conditions and the issue of corruption. Um, you know how much the Afghan government and the national community are, you know, serious about this issue of corruption and how much they are uh, able to uh, tackle this issue because it's very uh, prevalent. Uh, in the in the Afghan government and also uh, outside the Afghan government, the realization is there that corruption being the most uh, uh, serious uh, problem in the country, but there's not much uh, I think the government can do, provided of the context, the ongoing war and violence, and all other cross-cutting uh, priorities. The international community also, in a sense, are realizing the realities on the ground and are, in a sense, adjusting themselves to the official narratives and are mostly happy with the processes rather than the results. A formation of the Anti-Corruption Commission and all these uh, mostly uh, uh, around the policymaking agendas, so to some extent convinces some of the partners provided of their, uh, their international experience dealing with the situation like Afghanistan. In the absence of rule of law and all these uh, warlordism and the ongoing uh, violence all across the country, there's not much you can do perhaps in terms of managing uh, 
a crossing point or a, or a customs office in a, in, a, in, a, in a location where there is local militias and, 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 and different groups involved. So at the center, uh, the same is also uh, true of the revenue management. Uh, there is a lot of leakages and there is a need for, for reform, but at the same time, uh, managing a peace process and uncertainties involving the future of the country uh, also is taking up a lot of energy. And managing the war at the same time has been a big agenda for the government. And also the recent political impasse, which uh, finally successfully um, ended the political impasse created during the elections, is also uh, slowing down the reform process. So uh, I believe that might be taking you know, some time, and the key is uh, stability. Uh, political stability will help uh, reduce corruption. Mm -hmm, true. But also corruption is actually fueling this war. So if I were the government of Afghanistan or the international community, try and, I would try and find ways to deal with corruption because... Um, that it's 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 a uh, it's if it's not the factor, it's one of the factors that is actually fueling this conflict, isn't it? No, that that's absolutely correct. There shouldn't be an excuse on the part of the government to uh, uh, perhaps uh, not address this uh, management uh, issues. There's a lot that the government can do, and that requires a lot of political will. Uh, yet we don't see such a kind of will, uh, particularly in, in the revenue management departments within the Ministry of Finance. There's a lot that the government can do, uh, and that political will needs to be created. And this pressure from the international community is very much visible now, and we noticed it during the recently held Geneva Conference in November 2020. Uh, if you ask any international partner uh, or, or a donor country, uh, about Afghanistan's single most uh, uh, challenge, and they would uh, respond from a development perspective, of course, is corruption. Uh, there was a dedicated side event at the very high level with president participating at the Geneva conference dedicated to the issue of corruption in Afghanistan. Mm. Uh, and this, there's no excuse on the part of the government. Yeah. So, I mean, from under the Karzai government where, um, you know, we uh, know uh, that the corruption is not new. It's, it's from the previous administration and it moved on to the current administration. Uh, and uh, President Ghani was seen as uh, as anti-corruption crusader. The One of the platforms that he was running on was anti-corruption. Uh, but unfortunately, uh, I think over the last five, six years, we were just seeing more of the same. I mean, you mentioned that there are also these other factors that influence it, but I, I, but I agree with you that there's no excuse for the government to not do anything about it, knowing that this is fueling the conflict, and this is also making, you know, the gap between the people and the government larger. That's correct. Uh, for example, in one of the cases which were made public recently, uh, and on the record, I believe that recently. Uh, there the were uh, the Afghan National Army uh, associates uh, uh, selling uh, ammunition to the Taliban, to the very same forces that kills them. And mm -hmm. this is outrageous. 
it is it is well this is uh, that's that's what the the situation is and this is extremely disappointing and no no excuse on that front and the international development partners have been extremely serious but they also are uh, vigilant of or cognizant of the fact that they are not funding afghanistan because of the reform or corruption agenda they are there for strategic reasons and they to some extent try to uh, be a little at ease with it if we get to achieve some strategic results for example the stability the peace process so that could perhaps satisfy some of our partners otherwise that we as a country have failed to convince our international partners to continue supporting us and that that's why the level of aid at the Geneva conferences uh, has declined at the same time what we see at the Geneva conferences uh, that uh, uh, donors uh, have heavily, heavily conditionalized their uh, upcoming uh, grants to Afghanistan and they have also changed their decision from uh, long term pledging to year on year uh aid subject to uh, end of year assessments and reporting and um, and then uh, the the four years or the the mechanism which were known as a quadrennial donor pledges is now broken uh, every single donor has to be making their own assessments at the end of the next financial year to 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 see if they are uh, still satisfied to continue funding this this estate so this is alarming and uh, we are glad that this is being noted on the part of the international community and we have to uh, behave accordingly mm. still there's uh, the commitment is uh, substantial 12 billion dollars in the next 4 years i believe uh which which uh, if it's spent wisely uh, i would argue that it could help afghanistan in many ways yes the the specific pledges they have for the first year is 3. Three billion dollars and not much of a commitment already or pledges made for the years to, to come so we can assume that this that will continue at the same level but there's no specific commitment most of the commitments are made for the first year mm. uh, but obviously it's very uh, drastically um, you know decreasing because I remember before to 12 billion was uh, three billion a year was was nothing compared to like two thousand two, two thousand and three, where there are like billions of dollars being poured in. Correct. That that that's correct, and uh, you know we hope that if a peace process is succeeded, uh, sex, uh, but then uh, uh, there are chances that the Afghan uh, is, uh, military expenditure will go down, and then. FDI is another potential mining is an area where Afghanistan can invest and look into agriculture value chains or another area. Transit trade is at the heart of what Afghanistan is looking at as a competitive advantage to finance its development needs. But in spite of this optimistic scenario, even in a post-peace situation, the figures that we have at the Institute, our projections based on the data provided by the World Bank in Afghanistan's statistics, I suggest that the country will still uh, heavily rely on the international aid by uh, 2035. Uh, wow. Even in 2035, uh, there will be a, a fiscal deficit of around 18% of GDP to be financed. Mm. So peace is not uh, a solution to all of our problems. This country will still heavily rely on the International Development Fund 
And the same way international international community uh, is uh, having uh, is left with the only leverage uh, to the peace process, and that is the economic aid, provided that the withdrawal uh, force, the, the military withdrawal, withdrawal uh, has already almost uh, close to an end. The only other leverage they can use uh, to force both both sides to uh, compromise is the, the, the finance. Uh, currently, the Afghan state uh, is run uh, by by uh, around eleven billion dollars per year, uh, out of which the Afghan government can only generate two billions at the moment. So this is a state that requires a lot of international support, even in a post peace scenario. So that uh, hopefully will have some some leverage at the negotiation negotiating table with the Taliban. Sure, and the whole peace, uh, post peace uh, activities will also require funding, like how we're going to bring the, the Taliban fighters back to the society. That will need money. Uh, how you create like uh, professions or jobs or or you know uh, things for for them and uh, those post the, the post peace agreement uh, efforts will also need a lot a lot of money. Uh, at the same time, uh, they, so from from what NATO has said that um, the Afghan National Army and Defense Forces (ANDSF) they are funded through twenty twenty two, I believe, uh, yeah. and and their their funding is uh, separate from this three billion dollar, whatever billion dollar that their national community agreed to uh, in Geneva, which is around four to five billion dollars a year. That's correct. That's a separate fund. The, what we discussed as a grant support the part of this Geneva conference is only civilian aid. And at the moment, Afghanistan, uh, up, up, up until now, received an, uh, an average uh, $4 billion civilian aid per year and, and another average of uh, uh, four, five, around $5 billion for the military support. So that comes out of a different funding and is managed by the NATO and the international coalition. So that uh, gives you a total of around $11 million per year, as I discussed earlier. Mm, okay. Uh, the other thing is uh, the connectivity projects that uh, I think some of them started under Karzai uh, administration. The vision is that Afghanistan can function as a hub, as a, as a land bridge between the resource uh, rich Central Asia and, and the resource deficit South Asia. Uh, but the reality on the ground and the political instability and violence uh, have stopped a lot of these uh, projects from kicking off. Uh, the suggestion is to start with small bilateral projects so we, we, we do show some benefits of economics to the neighboring countries, namely Pakistan. And then uh, building up on these joint small projects uh, that can help with the trust, uh, we can suggest multinational, multi-billion dollar projects. Specifically mentioning TAPI, uh, uh, my observation is that TAPI from the very outset uh, uh, has been uh, uh, not feasible uh, from two uh, point of views. One. Uh, this uh, requires, uh, this is not a donor-funded uh, program. This is a private sector project, which requires an investment of around $10 billion. And 
Uh, at the same time, that uh, requires international expertise of an international oil company. Uh, could be a European or an American company with the right type of technology to be, uh, to be installing this pipeline. But uh, historically, the host uh, governments, uh, particularly uh, Turkmenistan, uh, has never shared any data or is willing to be sharing any information uh, with the with the international uh, oil companies. So most of them left the, the, the program and then uh, they, they still are suggesting that they will be using their own uh, domestic technologies to be installing this. Not understanding the, the, the capacity uh, and at the same time taking the, the risk of investing in something around $10 billion uh, is, an, as, as, is as a serious risk. So we are, what we see is, uh, a lot of uh, uh, inaugurations and, and, and lip services for many of these agendas. Uh, and, uh, and we don't see this being a, a realistic project. Uh, the same is, uh, but, but contrary to this, uh, we can, uh, CASA is already having uh, donor funding, uh, which is a donor-driven project supported by the World Bank. And the kind of technologies which in, 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 which is needed is being discussed, and the procurement is started. Uh, the same multinational projects also equally took another fifteen years, and uh, up to now, uh, the, the the design and is as such that it brings around one hundred three thousand megawatts of electricity, clean energy from Kyrgyz to uh, uh, Tajikistan, and then added with uh, some further. Capacity uh, Afghanistan is being used as a as a transit country, transmitting electricity to Pakistan, and for the very first time, perhaps, uh, proving Afghanistan uh, 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 as a as a as a country where Pakistan could benefit uh, economically, and that gives Afghanistan a leverage over the future connectivity projects. And that's an energy project. Most of the hydroelectricity projects, every single transmission from Central Asia to South Asia must pass through Afghanistan. And this is based on the research by the CARIC, ADB's Central Asia program, a flagship program on Central Asia connectivity. So there is a potential, a long-term potential, but the speed is slow and that is natural uh, because of funding and also because of the kind of expertise. These projects are extremely complicated legally and also in terms of the technologies that needs to be used and political consensus around these projects took a lot of time. And so we don't have the institutions with the right expertise to be negotiating in any of these countries. Our Ministry of Foreign Affairs and any of these four countries are not designed to be doing a multi-billion dollar project of that magnitude. But the political will has been there, but still technically these have been really time consuming. Uh, and the, my, our suggestion is to start small and see the benefits and show the benefits of economics so people can come back for, for more. And instead of going big, I think there's a lot of room for bilateral cooperation between these countries rather than multinational. Mm. And I think some of that is also happening between, uh, at least between Afghanistan and some Central Asian countries. Uh, they, they have been signing, uh, you know, small scale uh, economic cooperation uh, agreements recently. No, that's correct. That uh, I believe is bilateral, and with the changes in Uzbekistan, we see some 
economics between the two countries picking up uh, with Tajikistan, you know, with, uh, uh, for example, recently with Turkmenistan, there there was a suggestion uh, or uh, there, there were uh, agreements being signed for three proje projects. One is a railway connecting the Afghan uh, border to the uh, to the main uh, the business city of Anhui, and at the same time, uh, uh, the fiber optic uh, between Turkmens and Afghans, and there's also an electricity project, electrification, uh, which is which, these are all vital programs. And this is uh, still what we see as an infrastructure offers from CPIC in Pakistan or BRI or the ones offered by the Central Asians are still of that uh, China-centric mindset. And they are thinking ahead of a successful peace pro program followed by an economic integration. Mm. So that binds some of these countries around the development and economic agenda, namely BRI or CPIC or, or some of the other bilateral uh, programs. Uh, and that is evident uh, based on the recent move by Turkmenistan. Turkmen's wait some 20 years uh, and then at this very uncertain uh, environment, they come and suggest three infrastructure projects. So those has to be seen from that political angle. Mm. Yeah, I was going to actually ask uh, a question about the China-Pakistan uh, economic corridor, uh, which is part of uh, the Built uh, and Road Initiative. And China's been, I don't know if China's been actively trying to include Afghanistan in the project, uh, but I know that China has been open to the idea to involve Afghanistan uh, and, and the CPAC or the BRI in general, like you said, through Uzbekistan and Central Asia, that could be another possibility. Uh, do How do you see the future of Afghanistan, like, joining CPAC because like how can I, I, I don't also see uh, a, a resistance from Pakistan like at least not public resistance but could Afghanistan join CPAC or any other BRI projects? Our vision for Afghanistan was to connect Central Asia with South Asia for fiber optic and connectivity projects namely gas pipelines and energy transmissions and fiber optics this vision uh, doesn't go beyond Pakistan and South Asia. For Afghanistan, South Asia starts and ends in Pakistan. This is a reality. There's not much we can do about it. And this has been a historical fact. Overland trade between Afghanistan and India is broken. And that uh, it was in, uh, um, in line with the historical Grand Trunk Road back in the 16th century connecting Kabul to Kolkata. But the new reality in the Sark region is that Afghan uh, India and Pakistan doesn't trade much, and there's no uh, chance for Afghanistan even uh, to to uh, export or import to India. So this is reality, and our friends in India also didn't live up to the expectations to develop Chabahar or uh, the expectations uh, the region had uh, from them as a as another major regional power. Uh, so at the same time, China is bilaterally working with every single. South Asian or Central Asian countries. And they, China has become a common denominator for countries in South Asia as well as in Central Asia. So what we have in hand is that there's a major uh, program, CPEC, uh, and at the same time, uh, Chabahar uh, doesn't seem to be uh, feasible or happening anymore, or even happening at a very low scale. 
So what is it that you're going to do as an alternative? Uh, of course, there, there are options. Afghanistan has to look into those potentials in CPEC as well as in, in BRI and also part of those other initiatives like Five Nations Railway and so forth and so on. Uh, we have been open traditionally to be joining to any of these regional uh, clubs and forums for economic and mutual connectivity projects. Uh, but there hasn't been much of a delivery uh, for alternative options. Uh, I named Chabahar and uh, similarly other initiatives around in the region. So but, but I think China is leading uh, and it is uh, in, in line with the a peace agenda and infrastructure projects they have uh, suggested to Afghans. For that, there was an official program process at Tyra trilateral negotiations process between China, Afghanistan, and Pakistan at the level of the uh, foreign, sec foreign ministers. Uh, I'm not sure if, that, if it is being continued, but there were already three rounds of those negotiations being held, discussing uh, 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 an economic approach, including uh, CPEC. So there is a need to further study Afghanistan's vision of CPEC. Afghanistan's vision or perception of BRI. Uh, I doubt that any credible study is out there. And these are some of the areas that we are working at the moment at the Institute. Okay, that's good. Uh, well, there, there, there are lots of despair in terms of poverty rate, in terms of uh, the economy shrinking, but at the same time, there are lots of, of opportunities. And, and most of this is connected to uh, to to stability uh, and to peace in Afghanistan. Uh, uh, so the the priority probably for Afghanistan and and its partners and the region uh, is or should be peace. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, so, uh, uh, do you uh, do so? But uh, and and we have been also talking about this idea of self reliance. But you you gave me like a data point or a prediction that. Even by 2035, Afghanistan will still need substantial international aid. Uh, but uh, to move toward self-reliance, what path should Afghanistan take uh, and how can the international community help with that? Great. Before I share observations on the self-reliance agenda on the uh, CPEC or connectivity programs, uh, for Pakistan, the is the best possible option to turn CPIC into a real corridor uh, for economic opportunities is to connect CPIC through Afghanistan to Central Asia. CPIC will not be fully materialized without Afghanistan and Central Asia. Uh, and this uh, is realized by the Pakistanis. So we see that the geopolitics in the region is uh, different than what uh, it was in the 1990s. Political stability is in the best interest of China and Pakistan, uh, provided of their economic agendas. Uh, any uh, uh, failed state in Afghanistan or a collapsed state in Afghanistan would definitely uh, challenge uh, China's regional ambitions and uh, Pakistan's economic opportunities. And that also is not in the best interest of Iran or even uh, Russians. So we have come to a point that uh, we have to be uh, focusing on a forward-looking agenda, uh, which is based on economic opportunities, 
with a, with a formula that brings the stability, and that's also in the best interest of Americans, and we see them moving along those lines. With respect to the self-reliance, I think the agenda uh, is uh, uh, advisable. It is uh, uh, well received by the international partners that at least we are making efforts. But uh, giving a, a wrong uh, impression or, or introducing an illusion by our statesmen uh, that uh, self-reliance uh, is achievable by 2025 uh, is, is, is not serving anyone's interest. Uh, this is an illusion. The self-reliance suggested by the government in 2012 by President Karzai's government was introduced in Tokyo conference subsequently in the London and Geneva and Brussels. This is a vision, but the statistics suggest that this country is heavily reliant on the international aid. So any process that brings stability to Afghanistan must consider the economic dependency. Peace is not going to be a solution to all of our problems. Poverty, climate, uh, market, uh, and uh, unemployment, businesses, uh, these uh, are the still reliant upon international aid and then that means and that statements really clearly came out of the, the Doha launch that the international community will be adjusting their levels of commitment and aid to Afghanistan subject to what we cook uh, as, a, as a new formula or as a new process. So that is uh, that must be felt that none of these uh, uh, engaged parties in Doha could, could sustain this state. This state according to our publicly available data will be heavily reliant to the official development assistance by 2035, even under optimistic scenarios that we discussed earlier. That was the end of this episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. Have a good day and have a good night wherever you are.